Define sustainability. Odds are your definition is completely different from the next person's. Appalachian State University's Director of Sustainability, Dr. Lee Ball, sits down with his guests to explore the many ways in which sustainability affects our lives. This is Find Your Sustainability. Welcome, everybody. I am Lee Ball, and I'm your host of Find Your Sustainability. Today's podcast is a conversation that I had with David Orr. David Orr is Emeritus Faculty at Oberlin College, and David is one of the country's foremost leaders in sustainability education. David pioneered the field of sustainability education before most people even knew what the S word was even about. And so because of David's insights and his deep perspective on campus sustainability and political science and the politics of sustainability, we've asked him to join us in our podcast today, and I hope you enjoy it. So David Orr, thank you so much for coming back to Boone and joining me in our podcast. We call this Find Your Sustainability. Well, thanks for having me. This is a great place to be, and your work is really great. So thanks to you for doing what you're doing. Yeah, so this is your eighth Appalachian Energy Summit that you've attended, and uh, we're extremely lucky to have you to be a part of the Appalachian family. So again, thank you for taking the journey from Oberlin, Ohio, down to Boone. Well, Lee, thank you I mean, for all the leadership and the work you do here and the excitement and creation of alternatives within higher education. That's critically important, and you're carrying that on, so thanks to you. You're welcome. So I understand you have some family in the area? We do. My, my roots of both my mother and uh, father's family go back in North Carolina for uh, two centuries, and uh, mostly dirt farmers and hell raisers around Charlotte. I think they're part of the Mecklenburg crowd back in the 17-whatever-it-was. Right. Uh, yeah, North Carolinian by, by lineage, yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. So having a sense of our place is so important to the work that we do, and I know that um, you, know, you feel the same, especially with your work in Oberlin and the Oberlin Project. I know that, that that place is a big part of what you you know what you focus on. Oberlin is interesting. Like Boone and Appalachian State, there's a legacy that builds up over the years. And in the case of Oberlin, it was the first college to accept African Americans and women and graduate them. And that goes back into the 1830s. That was part of the DNA of the of the institution. It wasn't as wonderful as it sounds. I mean, there were real conflicts. The board votes to accept African Americans were close calls, but it happened, and it marked the institution, and it's carried that commitment into the present. What we tried to do in the past, in my roughly 30 years in, in town, most of that, 27 years on the faculty and or in the administration, is to begin to broaden that sense of commitment to include environment. I mean, what good is a great college if you don't have a decent planet to put it on, to paraphrase Thoreau? And so that's been our attempt to see environment and climate and energy issues as flip sides of a coin that involved equity, fairness, decency, and justice. And so that's, that's the role. But, but Oberlin has been a, a great place to live because of that commitment. What do you think was special about Oberlin to kind of create a a space where there was tolerance and more acceptance than other places? Well, I think part of it is simply the legacy, the history of the uh, the place, having African-Americans and women there, they mixed in the student body and it became a, you, you knew people and they were friends and they were classmates and so forth. I think over the years it broke down this barrier 
that had begun a long time ago. You know, slavery and racism are separate kinds of issues as part of the darker legacy of the United States. And they're not the same thing. Racism was a different thing than simply slavery. It was a denigration of the personhood. And that breaks down in situations where you, you know people. They're your neighbors or your friends or your roommate down the hall. And I think it was that personal contact. It, it's harder to be a racist if you know African Americans or Asian Americans or Native Americans. So I, th I think it was just the years of contact plus the, the institutional commitment to work at that level. So how do you think that contributed to Oberlin being a campus that also focuses on the environment and cultivating a citizenry that cares about um, the environment? That's a great question. In the case of Oberlin, the environmental studies program that I chaired from 1990 off and on until I retired, it was started by a group of students in a January term back in 1979 or 1980, long before I got there. And it was a student-led initiative that drove the, the program. When I went there, what, what I did, the college had no facilities, capital plant for environmental studies, and I got permission to build an environmental studies center. And that was at the start of the kind of the green building movement was beginning. Sim Vanderein's work in California and other people, John Lyle's work in Southern California, there were people beginning to ask these kind of questions about the built environment. So we organized uh, an effort. I had to go raise money independent of the college to fund it. It was about a roughly $7.5 million project. We eventually raised over 10 for it. But the result was an initiative that was very environmental. It was the first substantially green building on the U.S. college campus. It still generates, thanks in part to the uh, App State alum, Sean Hayes, it still generates more energy than, than it uses. By large margins, it's 40 to 50% more every year than it actually uses from solar energy. But we made that an environmental class project. We had about 250 students work on that project along with a great design team, including Amory Lovins and RMI and people from NASA and the Bill McDonough firm and Carol Franklin's landscape architecture firm. So we put together an incredible group of people who were thinking about design in the 90s uh, with students, and that was one of the requirements. And so what happened was at a scale you can get your head around. This is a 14,200-square-foot building powered entirely by sunshine, no toxic materials in the building and so forth. There was a platinum building before there was a rating system. But what that did was to give us something tangible. You can see it. And we're visual creatures. Something like 80% of our sensory apparatus is in our eyes. We privilege what we see. And all of a sudden, green design was something you, you see. It, it's, oh, that building over there. And oh, by the way, it's powered entirely by sunshine. And that's in a state where sunshine is still kind of a theory. It, it's cloudy uh, in terms of degree days and so forth as, say, the city of Seattle. But you can do it. It's a zero discharge building. There's no waste product comes in. It's drinking water in, drinking water out. So what we did was to take the state of the art at that time in the 90s, pull together an incredible design team at that point. That was the A team of ecological design in, in the U.S. and probably the world. We put that together and with students, and it became a learning project. So one of the things I've always worried about is kids in this age bracket, well, actually from like five years to PhD, what they see is a world coming undone. And whether it's, you know, climate change or species extinction or ocean acidification or soil loss or whatever, they're looking at these graphs that go up and or sharply or down sharply and they see their future disintegrating. 
But if you reduce the scale to something the size of a building, you can get your head around that. Yeah. And you put them to work doing material safety data sheets, all this stuff about toxicity or climate or the technological possibilities. And it turned out that even in the 90s, uh, as we were in the process of designing this building, yeah, you could design entirely solar-powered buildings in a place where sunshine was a theory, dark, cloudy places a good bit of the time. So the last project before I retired in uh, November of 2017 was a solar-powered hotel. So the college has a 105,000-square-foot hotel conference center with commercial space and a jazz club and so forth, entirely powered by sunshine. It's an off-site array about a quarter of a mile distant, but it is rated as a USGBC platinum building. And so what we did was to make what is possible visible in both cases. Uh, the hotel project is lacking only the final touch. Maya Lin, the great designer, is doing the landscape design as one of three projects around in the hotel and around the hotel. So I think making these things, as you've done here, I mean, what, what you do at Appalachian State, you've galvanized a lot of this throughout the state and other institutions in the state system. And making these things visible, it's the normal thing to do. And uh, it's the easy thing to do. That's the challenge. So that takes you real quickly into politics. You have to change the regulations. You have to get a lot of stuff out of the way to make what is the right thing to do and the economically smart thing to do and the ethically just thing to do. You have to make that easy to do. Well, we really appreciate your leadership with those projects. I mean, you were so ahead of your time in the 90s. And we were, I mean, really, many of us are struggling to do those very things today. And another thing that impresses me is the fact that in, in the 90s, you imagined a building that was beyond net zero, as net positive. And so it's, it's a generous building. And, uh, you know, that's how we need to be thinking today. So, you know, it's, I know it wasn't easy and it took a lot of, um, you know, brain power, but we like to say it's not rocket science, it's building science. We had the tools. Yeah. It just took some leadership to get it done on your part and the institution's part, and I'm sure your board. Truth be told, this was really a collective, collaborative project. We, we had an incredible design team. We had 22 different firms uh, and organizations working on the design. We had a group of great students. You know, what you're doing and or what we were doing in that, what you do here is it, it's partly internal education. So the buildings are educational that you, you do. They're designed to be uh, pedagogical instruments, to use that awkward word, but as teaching tools. They're designed to stretch kids' sense of what is possible, their ecological imagination and possibilities of that, that extend past the, the, the current generation. And then internally, what you're, what you're also doing here and what we were doing there and on every campus is trying to educate a board and administration. Here is the right way to do this, these kinds of things. And it, it's sometimes hard for them because they have fiscal responsibilities that are tough. They've got to make, make sure the payroll is met every month and so forth, and the endowment is sound, and the number of students come in. Yeah, colleges and universities are not easy places to run. And in places like you, if people like you and me come in and say, hey, well, you could do this a little bit better and so forth. And it, it takes a bit to get open-minded administrators willing to risk a little bit of their career. But uh, the right thing to do here is, um, is also the smart thing economically to do. I mean, that, that's been one of the gifts that Amory Lovins has given us to understand that this is not only something you should do, but it's also something that is the smart thing to do. So there's this historic convergence of these two uh, things that humans have to reckon with. What's the short-term smart and long-term smart and 
so forth. And one of the things that came through in our building, which I think was very useful, was to say we want to design so well and so artfully that we cause no injustice upstream, both human and ecological or downstream. And so you're talking about a different kind of building where you're seeing the building in this larger context of the flow of materials and energy from source to eventual consequence. But that that was educational for the board. And it was interesting, the, the Lewis Center was occupied January 2000. When it came time to do the hotel project, the board just assumed, oh, it would have a living machine. And oh, they really? just assumed it would be solar powered. So the, the needle had moved in terms of board aspirations and what they thought was possible to do. Right. So, you know, in a sense, what you've done with uh, the Environmental Center is created another faculty member, a colleague in the building that you've been able to have on staff for all these years and you continue to learn from and the students and, and you know, everyone that's researching that space will be learning from that built environment until it's not there anymore. That's a great way to put it. I hadn't thought of it in that term, but that's a great way to put it. And one that can't go on strike or cause trouble unless you just exactly. maintain it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'd like to ask you a personal question, David. What's your earliest memory of the natural environment? Oh, wow. Well, I was born in Des Moines, Iowa, so my earliest memories are, as a kid up to age five were snowstorms and Iowa heat and so forth. I think the earliest memories I have pertinent to this conversation are growing up in, in western Pennsylvania. My dad was president of a college in a town called New Wilmington, Pennsylvania, in a beautiful rolling country, Amish country, rolling hills. And then he had a, a place up on the Allegheny River, uh, about a mile back from the river, in a deep hemlock forest and uh, beautiful rock formations. And it had been occupied and, and cut over in part, but this was still a virgin portion of that forest, never been cut. And so long before I could articulate anything environmental, there was this kind of biophilic sense growing. And uh, the, the smells of a hemlock forest and the mosses and the waters and so forth, that became embedded pretty quickly. So for me, when we were there, which was a good bit of the summer times and actually a good bit of the year all around, the day was out in the woods playing. And that, that playtime was really critically important. And so trying to take that forward uh, I think that's an important part of this whole movement of ecological design to build contact points between young people, well, all people, but certainly at the younger ages, and the natural world, whether it's city parks or river walks or whatever. And I think one of the great inspiring things for me is the rise of biophilic cities, where this becomes part of the way cities are designed. And then again, there's this convergence of what's the right thing to do, which is to associate young people with nature and the world in which they uh, grew up. Uh, and then the smart thing to do, because you find that property values go up where there are trees and green spaces and so forth. So this, I think the environment represents this historic convergence of two things that humans always wrestle with. What's the smart thing to do? And what's the right thing to do? And it turns out, in this case, they're often the same thing. But for me, that started early in in life at ages five, six, seven, eight, and, and never went away. And later when I read, when I went to graduate school, I read people like Rachel Carson and, and Aldo Leopold and folks like that. You had this sense that I thought that, mm -hmm. but I never said that. And this sense of, of being part of the natural world, uh, not a part from it, but part of the natural world. So That's what I love about biophilic design. It really kind of 
thrusts us together with a natural world. I mean, we're natural beings and many of us have been disconnected in urban environments and, and even suburban environments. And when you design with nature in mind, there really is no disconnect. Right. And, you know, we crave as human beings, as animals, we crave, a, you know, our connection back to nature. And I feel fortunate like you to have kind of grown up in the woods and, you know, have been surrounded by the natural world. I feel very lucky and it. I'm always curious about, you know, people like us, why did we come to this work? And so that's another question I have for you is, well, you know, was there a time that you realized that you wanted to dedicate your career towards, you know, helping make the world a better place? You know, I, I think uh, I was part of the Vietnam generation and was in graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania in the political science department. But Ian McHarg, uh, the great landscape architect who wrote Design with Nature, came out first in 1969. And we just had a uh, 50th anniversary of the publication of that book at the University of Pennsylvania. And McHarg was one of these larger-than-life people who changed the way we see our methods of inhabiting the land. And it was biophilic uh, long before there was, uh, E.O. Wilson had coined that word and made it popular. Uh, I think that's really where it started. But I was at this point where I would go around a campus and find uh, the best teachers around at Penn, and there were a lot of them at, at the University of Pennsylvania. Benny DeBose from uh, Rockefeller University was a regular lecturer, and uh, Lauren Osley was uh, on the campus at that time. I would sit in on lectures of some of these people, and it began to galvanize a sense of uh, what I wanted to do in the world, like putting a compass on the table. It, it told me which way was magnetic north, but it wasn't an itinerary. It wasn't a map. I didn't have a career plan. I had a career direction. And the other part of this was in the politics department at Penn, I began to read people like William Ophel's writings and Herman Daly, the economist, and so forth, and began to see that everything environmental really is political. Uh, if you go in the politics department and ask what is political, they say it has to do with who gets what, when, and how. And if the what involves air and water and land and fossil fuels and wildlife diversity and so forth, then you begin to see this is really all political, which uh, kind of just for me is a segue into uh, current work in democracy. And we have, uh, we're, we're witnessing the decay of democratic institutions and rapid collapse of these in, in Europe and Hungary and Poland and uh, possibly Germany and France and uh, England and now in the United States. We thought that would never happen, but it is happening. And so one of the fundamental challenges going forward is to understand, and this is not an argument for uh, conservatism or liberalism, is simply to say that these are political issues. And if we value uh, the role of democracy, the public engagement in, in the public business, then we have to begin to understand the ways in which environment it plays out politically. And this has a lot of nuts and bolts issues to moral issues. And the nuts and bolts level, the Environmental Protection Agency, for example, uh, was created in 1969 out of a hodgepodge of other federal agencies that didn't fit very well together. But there was no, what was called an organic statue, uh, a law that said this is what the agency does and anchored it to a specific set of purposes. And so the EPA blows in the winds, the political wind. So a, a hardcore left-wing com person comes in and does this, and a Trump comes in and does this. We're witnessing a shift in our capacity to protect the environment that is dramatic. The, the pullback from the Paris Accords uh, was probably the most visible thing that the uh, Trump administration has done. 
But th this gets into politics. It need not be conservative or liberal because you can be either one and be a very good environmentalist. Uh, back in the in our history, Teddy Roosevelt and people like Nat Reed in the Interior Department were uh, staunch Republicans, but really uh, good on environment. And so you can use the market, you can use uh, political instruments, but the market always exists within a political context. So what happens in our politics affects a good bit of what happens in the market. Markets are where you know we say I, me, and mine, but politics are say we and us and ours. And uh, that pronoun marks out a decidedly different way to do things. But again, they're not opposing things, they're flip sides of the same coin. So back on the question, what I began to see was how do we adjudicate the human role in the natural world? And the, the sense that we ought to is the biophilic sense. The sense of how do we do this is involves politics and uh, markets and ethics and so forth. And so the current work we're involved in is um, the Democracy Initiative. We have a book that comes out early uh, 2020 from the New Press. It's called uh, Democracy Unchained. Uh, I've got 32 contributors to the book that include people like Bill McKibben and Jessica Tuckman Matthews, but it's a full uh, spectrum of issues that pertain to human survival or capacity to get through this particular era. And the good news in the book uh, in a way is that a good many of the market things have already happened. We're not suffering from lack of technology, as Amory has pointed out for decades. If we used off-the-shelf technology, we'd use a fraction of the energy we now use. And that takes a lot of the heat, no pun intended, off our political systems and so forth. That's the good news in this. And the bad news is we haven't yet put this all together as a systematic climate energy policy that is transparent and fair, works for future generations and all those larger things. So the goal is to begin in this whole project with the book and then the 14 events we're planning around the country and starting with one at the uh, National Cathedral in Washington on the spiritual foundations of democracy uh, to events in Boston, Washington, New York, uh, San Francisco, Denver, Los Angeles, and so forth, 14 in total. And the goal is to start a broad-based conversation and, and that conversation was implicit in early years at Penn. As I was taking classes over in the politics department and uh, wandering around the campus and taking in Ian McHarg's classes and so forth, there's this larger dialogue about whom, how humans make their place in the world in a way that's decent, fair, and durable or sustainable in the language. So that, you know, that intrigued me because I felt like we were making a lot of headway, you know, even when you were in school. Um, fast forward to, you know, the, the 70s and 80s and even the mid 90s. And then here we are today, you know, I'm sitting with, you know, you're one of the founders of the sustainability education movement. Um, you, you know, you started this work before we even had the word sustainability in the lexicon. And then you've yeah. you know, written about it for many, many years. But here we are in 2019. And those of us who are sustainability educators are struggling more than ever to really get people to care and you know and we we feel like we've used every you know tool in our toolbox and every trick you know that we can imagine to try to get people to connect to care and to connect and so where do you think we're failing or what well, are, or what opportunities you know still exist i'm not sure that we're failing I, i've come to this and this is a, an opinion and it's off the cuff and i haven't prepared specific thoughts about this, but if I look at public opinion poll data, 
across a whole sampling of issues and differed by different pollsters, Gallup on up or down. The public is with us. I think to a great extent, we won. And, and it's hard to go anywhere without having somebody, uh, anybody. You can go down to the local truck stop. You can go to the local uh, ADA meeting. And people care about the environment. They'll say it differently. But nobody wants to breathe dirty air, drink foul water, and so forth and so on. Uh, people want their kids out there uh, on their hunting grounds or fishing. They want them in parks and so forth. So they, if you look at their aspirations for the next generation, it's a lot about environment. And so I think that in many ways, we won the battle for people's hearts and minds. No political candidate anywhere can come out as a barbarian and win very long or stay in office very long, for the most part, across the country. There are a few exceptions. But what happened was, if you think about this as, as uh, two sides of the Grand Canyon, on one side, you had public opinion, and it was, I think, largely with us. On the other side, you had the laws, rules, regulations, and so forth that we got, the policies that we actually got. And the bridge that connects those two got broken or better yet turned into kind of a toll bridge. So you had to have a lot of money to get across. And so every, and from the political science profession, when you study people's role in governance, you find out very quickly, it doesn't matter what the people down at the truck stop think or the people in the local school think or the people on Main Street think. It's what lobbyists want. We just had a House bill, what's gotten a lot of publicity around the country in Ohio, House Bill 6. Uh, Dave Roberts at Vox described it as the worst piece of environment and energy legislation he had seen in the 21st century, maybe ever. And what they did, what the Ohio legislature did, with a lot of dark money uh, came into this, and a lot of big corporate money came in, was a giveaway to First Energy. And uh, they revived or uh, subsidized two nuclear plants and a couple of coal-fired power plants, and the, the ratepayers pay. It's an awful bill. And even the business community was against it, but it passed. So what happened in between was a lot of what Jane Mayer, the writer for New Yorker, calls dark money came in, unaccountable money, which is, according to the Supreme Court, legal. And so uh, th this is a way of saying, I think we won the battle, for the most part, for hearts and minds. Not everywhere, not always uh, any you know, one place, but I think by and large we won it. And so... Uh, where did we fail? I think we failed uh, politically. So while we were, to put it this way, I, while we were holding great meetings and writing great books and doing great research and so forth, they were taking over school boards and city councils and state legislatures and governor's offices in 36 states and the uh, House representatives until the last election, the Senate, the court system, and the presidency. So uh, they were doing politics. We were doing environmental stuff. And we didn't, we didn't do the work we should have been doing at, at extending our message, which was right. I think in most cases, uh, as you know from the summit, uh, you can measure results of the summit last night at dinner. Uh, you're on track to save a billion dollars that would otherwise have been wasted in 10 years. That is incredible. So while you're doing those things that, that are measurable, for the most part, we missed a boat on, on defending our collective capacity to defend our collective environment and that that is that is political we got outspent uh by a lot of money but that's a long-winded answer to say i think maybe we won but we lost in the political arena so i've got one more question for you what has given you hope these days 
Well, I tell you, uh, hope is uh, takes some defining, but in, in short, I've said that hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up, and hope comes from actually being engaged in the world, but it also comes from people hanging out with people like you and people that will be at the summit uh, today and tomorrow and so forth, and people actually doing stuff in the world, people that just will not be beaten. They're going to be there, and they're there for their kids and their future generations. They're there because they love their colleagues. Uh, they're there partly because it's fun to do this stuff. And uh, we're setting out a major challenge. It's kind of a moonshot for us and for our generation. But can you make a sustainable, just, fair, decent, and prosperous, shared prosperous world? And I think the answer is yes. I take my hope from just the work that we all do. And the doing of the work is what uh, generates hope. Well, David Orr, thank you very much for joining me today and Find Your Sustainability. We're so thrilled to have you on campus again and look forward to many more uh, summits with you. Well, Lee, thank you. Thank you for the good work you're doing.